Uh, Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 10, um, and uh, going through verse 4, um, that's going to kind of be our passage here um, this morning, and it'll be on the screen, but what it says is this, it says, uh, when God saw that what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this why I said when I was yet in my country, that, it, that that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Let's pray. God, we thank you just for this day. Bless us through the reading and teaching of your word, uh, God, and help us to have understanding that leads our hearts to be transformed and ultimately to walk out in the calling that you have for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ah, so, this morning, imagine... If you would, if your imaginations still uh, work, that you haven't been jaded by everything going in the world, that you can't just uh, have a word picture with me. But, um, but imagine you're eating at a restaurant, which most of you do, and you looked at the menu, and you were like, this all looks delicious. Um, what I think I want to eat is uh, this wonderful 24-ounce ribeye steak, you know? And you order it with some, some potatoes or some asparagus, you know, the, all the fixings and trimmings. And, and so you, you order this meal. Um, and then, you know, like your server takes down the order. But while they're taking the order, they're like, really? Steak? Ugh. You know, what, what you really should do when you come to the steakhouse is order chicken. Uh, and they start getting on you. I love the already somebody, a couple, mm-mm, no, chicken at a steakhouse, are you crazy? Yeah, that's not me, but I mean, some people do this. That's why it's on the menu. But not only is it on the menu, the server begins to argue with you and be like, no. And then you're like, uh, give me my steak medium, medium rare. And they're like, mm-mm, you need to eat that thing extra crispy. Uh, and they just start getting on you about whatever it is. And, and at a certain point, you, you just look at them as you're enjoying your food and eating it, and you would just be like, bruh, this is my steak. <laughs> like, like when, when you're here and you want to order steak, I guess you can order steak the way that you want it. But as for me, I want the steak, not the chicken. I want it medium, medium rare, not extra crispy, well done, uh, essentially beef jerky. Uh, I, I want this thing the way that I want it. And you know what's crazy? Is that like if you went to a restaurant and the server like just like berated you for what you ordered, like you would consider that to be crazy. Because ultimately, you have the freedom and choice to order up what you want the way that you want it. And it's interesting as we're here towards the end of the story of Jonah, and we look at where he is, Jonah is essentially upset with God that God likes repentance the way that he likes it. That ultimately, when God sees the Ninevites repenting for the sin that they have done, for the actions and the deeds that they have done, it upsets Jonah and he decides to try to dictate to God how God 
should want to eat his steak, to try to be upset with God that God loves to see a contrite heart and a humble spirit. And just as absurd as it is for us to have people at a restaurant tell us how to order our food, it's equally and even more absurd for Jonah to try to tell God how he ought to deal, dish out hope, repentance, and what is ultimately pleasing to him. And neither Jonah or us today are really in the position at any point in time to dictate to God how he ought to consume repentance from sinners. That's ultimately what's at stake here. We can certainly put into this, and oftentimes when people preach through Jonah, they make this all about nationalism and all that other kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that those overtones, bless you, uh, of things don't exist. But I think we're ultimately missing the point when we reduce it simply to that, is that ultimately God sees the worship of those people and he chooses to have grace and compassion and accept the repentance of those people. And it's interesting once we view it in this light, what this ultimately does for us and what we'll ultimately walk through here today is that God's position and posture towards the Ninevites compared to Jonah's posture and position to the Ninevites ultimately tells us a lot about the nature of repentance and grace. And so let's put it like this. If we're going to sum this whole thing up is this, is that ultimately our only hope is that God doesn't give us what we deserve. That's the only hope that we have. If he gives us what we deserve, then we're in trouble. But if God chooses to relent and have mercy and grace upon us, then that's our hope. Our hope is in us not getting the thing that we deserve. It has nothing to do with Jonah and everything to do with God's sovereign choice to choose to extend grace and mercy to people who are turning from sin. And so with that, in one of the shorter, I say shorter sermons, I've got fewer points. Um, I don't know if it's going to be a shorter sermon, uh, but I have fewer points. But I, I think what we see in this brief passage uh, before next week, we finish out the story of Jonah and look at, and look at how God deals with Jonah um, and his response is this, is I think that we're going to see two truths about the grace of God. That's essentially where we are. The first of one is this, is that God extends grace as he pleases. Uh, it seems pretty straightforward, but God extends grace as he pleases. In verse uh, 10 of chapter 3, which is technically where we left off last week, we're going to see this. First of all, look at verse 10. It says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would uh, do to them, and he did not do it. So God sees that they have turned away from sin. God sees that they are crying out to him. And so God chooses not to send the disaster. Who knows what it was going to be? Is it an earthquake? Is it a fire? Is it some disease? Is it? Um, we don't really know, but what we do know is that when Jonah preached, he was letting them know that d- d- doom and disaster was coming like imminently. It was a big deal. And so uh, God chooses to extend grace. And it has, here's the part that's crazy about it, is that the people 
of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, can repent. But if God doesn't choose to stop what he's sending, then it doesn't matter. It's ultimately dependent upon God extending grace as he pleases. Now, what we see here in forgiveness, then, as God extends this to them, is think about this. Genuine forgiveness isn't meaningful unless it costs you something. Genuine forgiveness isn't meaningful unless it costs you something. What do I mean by that? That ultimately, a debt or wrong has to be incurred or perpetrated towards somebody in order for forgiveness to be meaningful. If you walk up to me and say sorry, and I go, for what? And you're like, uh, I didn't do anything, then okay, I guess you're just saying sorry. Maybe apologize for wasting my time, you know? But I mean, I mean like, like, it's not meaningful unless there's actually a debt that has been incurred. Now with Nineveh, it's interesting because a debt has been incurred. We've talked about this, the Ninevites, the Assyrian Empire was one of the most violent, brutal, horrid civilizations in the history of humanity. The things that they did, the things that they are responsible for are, are, are unimaginable. They were uh, experts of torture. They were experts of pain and suffering. They were experts of, of, of finding ways to extend the suffering of humanity. I mean, like that's ultimately what is happening here. And so we, we, we have to see that it's not just this, is that their sin though, isn't against the people that they've tortured. It's not against the people that's been executed. I need us to understand what's happening here. Their sin is ultimately against God. It's against the people whose image they bear. How do, how do, we, how do we put this in context? In Genesis, there's the flood. And after God destroys everything except for Noah and his family in the flood, and he brings them back, I think Jonah 9 or 10, or Genesis 9 or 10 is where you see this. There's this whole point, though, after, after the flood where God ultimately says to Jonah, as he's establishing rules for the land, that if somebody kills another person, then their life should be forfeit because they are killing somebody made in the image of God. It's wild when we think about the world that we live in and all of the conversations about human life and dignity and rights and people are upset when there are uh, genocide and atrocities that take place throughout the land, that take place throughout the world. Uh, we're talking about black lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter and everything under the sun. I think I, I was having this conversation late last year with somebody um, that I was sharing the gospel with, but, but I, I asked this question, where do, what, what, it, and it's funny because they're white and you know, I'm black and so I'm like, do black lives Lives matter, and they're like, "Whoa, uh, is this like a is this like a trap? Are you trying to get me somewhere?" I was like, "No, this is a legitimate question. Do Black Lives Matter?" And she looks at me and she says, "Of course they matter." And I looked at her and I said, "Why? Why do they matter?" This is somebody who began this conversation as we entered into as an atheist, and they would say, "Well, because life is precious." And I said, "Why? Why is life precious?" kept kind of going around. We ultimately landed in this 20-minute conversation 
What is, what, is, what is the basis for value of life apart from God? The reason why life is precious is because we're made in his image. And God makes the ultimate point that uh, when you kill somebody, uh, uh, you're offending me because I made them in my image. They are image bearers of the triune, all-powerful, eternal, almighty God. Your sin isn't against them. It's against me. You're destroying my creation that I fashioned in my image. The Ninevites, and the horrendous things that they did, their ultimate sin is against God. And God does not play. He sets the standard in Genesis on what it means to take another life. So their sin is against God. They've incurred this great debt. When you put their sin, their torture, their murder, their violence in the context of what they were doing to people who bore the image of God, and I think we understand the extent to their sin. And by the way, in our own lives, in our own sin, when we put our sin in light of the fact that we bear the image of God, then I think we understand why God gets so angry and why he punishes sin. Systemic injustices are a problem, not just because there's an injustice in the system, but because you show a lack of care and concern for people made in the image of God. Human trafficking and slavery is a problem because you are trafficking and enslaving and devaluing people who are made in the image of God. The issue with the Me Too movement and the things that get exposed with people in positions of power who are behaving badly, it's an issue not only because the power that you have is a mere reflection of the power that God has, and when you're put in a position of power, you should reflect the way that you use that power and the way that God uses that power as he rules and reigns with love, gentleness, and affection, but also because the people that you are, that you are oppressing are made in the image of God. And so it's in that context that we see the issue with what the Ninevites were doing. And ultimately, like, there's a great debt that's been incurred. How do you atone and make up for the fact that you have been torturing people, murdering people made in the image of God? They're his creation, not your creation. The Ninevites are in trouble. They've incurred this great debt, and yet grace and mercy has been extended to them. It's interesting. I think about this when I was a kid. Do you ever see this when you're a kid? Uh, maybe this is more of a boy thing. I don't really know. But uh, every now and then, especially in middle school, most of the fights I saw were in middle school because my high school, I went to a performing arts high school, and if you got into a fight, you got kicked out. So uh, nobody fought. I think in the four years that I was there, I saw one fight, and they got kicked out. So that's how, that's how that goes. Um, and that was my freshman year. And uh, I guess they had that middle school vibe. It was like the first couple weeks of school. They thought that they were coming from their middle schools, and they're like, we're going to do this. And these two girls got into a fight, and they're both gone. So, you know, there it goes. Uh, and no more fights to ever be seen. There wasn't even like a threat of a fight. We were just too busy being artists, artistic teenagers to, to worry about that kind of stuff. But I say all that to say that uh, in middle school, I saw a lot more fights. So um, have you ever seen this where somebody like hit somebody and then they realize like the person that they hit 
can't whoop them. And then they're like, ooh, no, no, man, we good, we good, we good, my, my bad, my bad. And now it's interesting because and I was never this person. I don't just walk up to people and hit them for no reason. All the fights I got into, uh, I did not start, but I finished. So I say all that to say that, like, you know, like, like, like you see somebody hit somebody or push somebody, and then they realize that they bit off more than they can chew, and then that person has an option, like, am I going to hit you back or am I going to leave you be? And the part that's crazy about it is that the uh, general peace and physical well-being of that person who initiated this is completely dependent upon the person that they hit choosing not to hit them back. That's ultimately what it comes down to, right? Like, like that, that's, that's it. And, and we've seen it where sometimes that person's cool, but in middle school, more often than not, somebody is about to get dropped. And it's like, oh, snap. Uh, and the circle uh, surrounds them, fight, fight, fight. And you're just watching somebody just take it to the face. Bam, bam, bam. And now in middle school, uh, we loved all that. I mean, some of the best days, I was like, oh, well, the best days was when there were multiple fights. I was like, yep, there it goes. Just WWE for real, right here. It's happening, it's happening. It's, it's right there. And so I'm walking around the halls of Power Grim Middle School, watching people get into fights. Uh, and, and it was great and uh, in terms of me not, not, not picking those fights. And I used to sit there and think about it like this, uh, especially somebody who was really small. I mean, I, I, I finished eighth grade and I was like 4'11 and 95 pounds. So uh, I was really small. Hit five feet when I got to, to high school. But, but like, like I wasn't really trying to pick a fight with people because if I did, then I would have to fight them. So typically, I would go out of my way not to offend people that were bigger than me. Uh, and I had a whole elaborate scheme on how to avoid fights. Uh, but, but ultimately, if you pick a fight and the person's bigger, then you're just subject to their discretion on what they want to do. And in this whole thing, we see that, that God is bigger, greater, stronger than anything that the Ninevites can do. And ultimately, God has the sovereignty and the decision on whether or not he will relent from judgment or distribute it. And so we see grace. Grace can be defined as this. The free and unmerited favor of God as manifested in the salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. The grace of God, what is that? It's free. It's unmerited. Favor. Extended to you. And this mercy that we see is ultimately compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. I want you to think about that. Mercy is when you give compassion or forgiveness to somebody and you actually have the power and jurisdiction to inflict punishment. And in this moment, the Ninevites recognize when they cry out to God that they have offended him and they first need his mercy not to punish them for the thing that he can punish them, punish them for and then to give them grace, which is the unmerited favor of God. And what do we see? God extends grace and mercy as he pleases, to whom he pleases. 
And that's what we see here with the Ninevites. So that's the first thing. The second thing, though, that we're going to see about uh, God's grace is this. Is that secondly, God gets the final say. It's not just that he extends it to whom he chooses to. He also gets the final say. Let's look at these first three verses in chapter 4 again. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord, and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. God's forgiveness upset Jonah. It's a good thing his vote doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like you, you know, nobody asked for your opinion. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you think about trials and court cases. There are always these famous court cases and trials that go on. Uh, uh, and in a case, there's somebody who's like the defendant, um, and they're being accused of a crime. Now, typically, uh, the way this works is that you're being accused of a crime, and you have a defense that you're trying to make, and there, there is a prosecutor um, who is, you know, like bringing up charges and arguing a case against you. And then there's a judge who presides over the trial, ultimately giving the framework for what things will be allowed in and what will not. And then the evidence is pre presented, and then the judge like, makes a verdict over, after listening to the evidence, on the guilt or innocence of the person. Now, what becomes interesting is that you can be found guilty of a trial, of a case, over a charge. And there's this interesting thing that takes place, is that like, as somebody who's been found guilty, you can actually make an appeal. You can appeal the decision, and the judge gets to determine whether or not they'll hear the appeal and do this all over again. And then on top of that, is that like, if you're found not guilty, while you can make an appeal as a defendant, a prosecutor can't make an appeal. Because once the judge has found you not guilty, that's it. You got this whole thing in our country about double jeopardy. Like once you've been found not, well, you know, like, like that's the way this thing goes. The judge has the final say. You might not like the verdict that the judge reads at the end, but the judge has the final say. The Ninevites found themselves to be guilty of everything that they were being accused of. And Jonah had no problem walking through the streets and letting them know that judgment was coming. They had already been judged and sentenced by God. That was it. The punishment is on the way, and yet... They cried out to God and asked for an appeal. And he heard their cry, even though he didn't have to, and he found them to be not guilty. He covered their sin. He forgave their sin. And ultimately, Jonah is upset that God was willing to find people who were guilty not guilty. 
But here's the thing, as we said before, and we'll say it again, Jonah's vote doesn't matter. And I think this gives us the context, even for how we deal with people that we struggle with. Because if God chooses to have forgiveness towards an enemy, uh, if God has, chooses to forgive somebody that we don't like or people that we struggle with or people that we think are particularly difficult or unworthy of grace and mercy, then it doesn't really matter what we think. Because grace, as we talked about, is the unmerited favor of God. And by definition of it being the unmerited favor of God, it makes true the things that our old, uh, old saints used to say, that favor ain't fair. It's not about favor. It's about God's sovereignty. And he ultimately gets to extend grace and mercy to whom he chooses to extend grace and mercy to. And he gets the final say on who is forgiven and who is not. That's why it doesn't matter how wretched or evil or broken your life is and the decisions that you've made. That whom the son sets free is truly free indeed. And just like with the Ninevites being guilty of some of the most horrendous things in the history of humanity. That when they cried out to God, God heard their cry and chose to have grace and mercy to them. If Jonah was really paying attention, he should have been excited about God's grace and mercy because that means if God can forgive the Ninevites of what they've done, then he'll forgive you of what you have done. You ought to be grateful that you don't get to intercede and have a vote and say on how God extends grace. He gets the final say. And speaking of which, the hypocrisy of Jonah is on full display as he's upset. In light of how God has already spared Jonah, his posture is incredible right now. He's literally upset that God's mercy is being demonstrated equally to others that he did not deem worthy. And we then, as you walk through this book, have two prayers that are put up against each other. And there's an incredible contrast that takes place. I almost put a chart up again uh, to, to uh, kind of compare some things, but I decided not to be a chart guy this week. But I will bring up some things. In Jonah chapter 2, uh, Jonah has been thrown into the water. Uh, he's sinking to the bottom of the ocean, and he cries out to God as he's about to drown. And that's when God chooses to have mercy upon him and sends the giant whale fish, whatever it was, to swallow him up. The whale was God's mercy that saved his life. And in Jonah chapter 2, you hear him praying out these key things. In verse two, in chapter 2, 6, he says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit. He says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. That means when he was about to die, he cried out to God and he remembered him. He talks about others forsaking their hope of steadfast love talking about the consistency of God and his grace and mercy. And yet here now we see the opposite of this in his prayer in chapter 4. Instead, when he prays in chapter 4, it says in verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, this not, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. 
And then he goes further, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than live. The guy who once was about to die is, uh, and, and crying out for God's mercy is now saying, uh, my life means nothing to me, I ought to die. The one who said, thank you, God, that you are gracious and have steadfast love is now the one saying, I hate your steadfast love. Like the hypocrisy of where Jonah is because his heart is so hardened that he doesn't get a vote in how God does, distributes his grace and mercy is on full display. Play. But what I love in all of this is God's resolve. Jonah's desire to die doesn't matter because God gets the final say, not just with the Ninevites, but with Jonah too. Not only is Jonah upset about God's grace and mercy being extended to him in that moment, he's also upset like, just kill me now. And God's like, no, <laughs> that's not how this works. Because life and death is in my hand. I think you have to understand in this whole thing. Jonah chapter 1, he flees to Tarshish to try to get away from the presence of the Lord. And bro, there's nowhere that you can go that you can get away from God's presence. Why? Because he's sovereign over all things, which also means that uh, you can't uh, leave this life until God says that it's time to go. He's not just an on-time God with blessings. He's an on-time God with when you get to leave this world. And you being tired and frustrated and upset with the sovereignty of God is not a reason to leave. And so we see God's resolve. Jonah desires to die. God does not oblige. And ultimately, Jonah finds himself caught in this interesting tension between his stubbornness and bitterness and the sovereignty of God over his life. So where does that leave us? John chapter, or Jonah chapter 4 verse 4 says, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? It's an interesting verse of reflection and a challenge for us, I think, today. Do you do well to be angry? And here's the big question for you then. Is does my heart align with God's heart? Does my heart align with God's heart? That's the challenge for us today, isn't it? And there are going to be multiple ways that we have the opportunity to, to, um, ex to express the alignment of our heart with the heart of God's. One of the most powerful images that I think that I saw um, over the last couple weeks, um, we, we're seeing this, uh, we're seeing just horrible things happening right now in this war between Russia and the Ukraine. Well, there was this crazy video that I saw of uh, Russian and Ukrainian Christians sitting in like a subway singing worship songs together. Like, we're at war right now, and your country is, has invaded my country, but because we're all in this together and one in Christ, we're going to worship the Lord together. And what an incredible scene to see 
believers allowing their heart to align with God's heart for people that would be considered their enemy. Late last fall, another example of this, and I think we talked about this, I might have mentioned this at some point in time, when Afghanistan was collapsing under the Taliban, there are Christians of the underground church in Afghanistan. In the weeks while the country was falling apart, we're seeing thousands of Afghans become Christians. As they had no hope or, or, and were in full despair, they were finally in their life ready to hear the message of Jesus. And I was following one of these organizations that's training and equipping the underground church um, in Afghanistan. And one of the things that they were saying was like, Lord, please help us, even as we're being persecuted, to share the gospel with the members of the Taliban. Because they were seeing, even at times, Taliban soldiers responding to the gospel. Like the people that are killing us, Lord, I want to see them forgiven and under your grace and your mercy. And by the way, this is the same grace and mercy that the early church extended to Paul as he was a terrorist and murderer of Christians. And it wasn't until Barnabas it's his heart aligned with God that he was willing to put himself out on the line and go before the apostles and say, no, we need to accept Paul. God has saved him. He's not just faking this so that he can infiltrate our ranks and arrest all of us. I want my heart to align with God's heart. And the question for us today is, in what place do you need your heart to align with God's heart? In what place are you angry with God in what place are you arguing and beefing with God in the way that he extends his sovereignty, uh, in the way that he demonstrates uh, or, or implements his will? Because I can tell you right now, God gets the final say. I'll close with this. One of my favorite gospel songs in, in all the years that I preach, um, this song, I'll reference it a whole bunch of times. Uh, I've, I've done it before. I'll do it again because it was truly a life-changing verse for me. When I was in high school, Hezekiah Walker came out with this album, Family Affair um, uh, 1. And on there, just a couple tracks in, I think it was track three or four, uh, there's a song called The Will of God. And the chorus, which, once again, it's this incredible ballad. Uh, it's a long song. It's like eight, eight and a half minutes. It's gospel music, so you know. Uh, but it perfectly illustrated as I was dealing with difficult things. And it simply says, we must accept what God allows. And we must never try to tell him how to order our lives. He has a plan in mind. He's the one who saved you, created you. He made you, and he knows what's best for you. His will is good, his will is acceptable, and it's perfect. As I began to wrestle with these words in high school and what it meant, and I've continued to wrestle with these words as I've got, gotten older, I think I've come to the place where I recognize that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. And if that is true, then my heart needs to align with God. I need to come into alignment with who he is because his will is not just good and acceptable, it's perfect. That means his mercy and grace applied. His mercy and grace applied in the lives of sinners crying out to him is good, acceptable, and perfect. Let's pray.